The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Beautiful Blind Spot Edition. It's Wednesday, January 23rd, 2018, and on today's show, first, the Fire Festival was a faux luxury music experience, which was described by Slate's Sam Adams as the equivalent of a Ponzi scheme for would-be social media influencers, a snowball that gathered victims and cultural significance as it went. Now it's the subject of two documentaries released days apart, Netflix's Fire and Hulu's Fire Fraud. But does either one get to the heart of who's really to blame for the debacle? We will discuss. Then, The Wife won Glenn Close a Golden Globe Award and her seventh Oscar nomination for her star turn as a loyal, self-effacing spouse of a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning novelist. This role has made Close a frontrunner for Best Actress, but is the film itself anything more than just a vehicle for her performance? And finally, we will chat about the Oscar nominations, which were released just a few hours before we came in to record this morning. Stephen is out this week, and Julia is off editing furiously for our first segment, but I'm joined to talk about the Fire Festival and the two documentaries about it by Sam Adams, the editor of Browbeat and a culture writer at Slate. Hello, Sam. Hello. And also here with us in the studio for this first segment on Fire is Slate staff writer and for today, our millennial slash music festival correspondent, Shannon Pollis. Hi, Shannon. Hi. Sam will be here as our third co-host for the whole show, and Shannon is joining us just for the first segment on the Fire Festival. Uh, all right, well, let's let's dive in with Fire. There's a lot to talk about here. If every generation gets the musical gathering it deserves, millennials may have grounds to sue the Fire Festival for mass defamation of character. So writes Sam Adams in his piece on Netflix's Fire and Hulu's Fire Fraud, the two documentaries about the festival that dropped the same week. The former is directed by Chris Smith and produced in part, perhaps troublingly, by Jerry Media, which is also the company that ran the marketing campaign for the festival itself. Let's listen to a clip from Chris Smith's Fire. Were you ever aware that they said that they had bought an island? (laughs) It's like you couldn't differentiate what was true and, and what wasn't true. I think it was like he had to put a million down and then like pay the rest by a certain amount of time. I don't know if that million was ever paid. (laughs) This was Pablo Escobar's island uh, 25 years ago. So we're taking the dream for your average person in America or wherever they are and saying for three days, you could become Pablo Escobar. (laughs) Billy was dealing with Pablo Escobar's lawyer. He was dealing with family members. The key, Norman's key, is rich in history with cocaine, drug lords, running the drugs to the Bahamas. The owner of the key, he won a new reputation for his key. They were told not to use the word Pablo Escobar, and then they used that in the first social media tweets. The new owner saw the first video promotion, and he kicked us off one shot. Like, no questions asked, they were kicked off. Six or eight weeks out, he had to find a new location on a neighboring island, and then start the whole process all over again. Just even hearing that, I'm getting I'm getting anxious all over again. I have to admit that watching this, to some degree, I identified with Billy McFarland, the horribly fraudulent and now jailed promoter of this festival, just because anybody who's ever taken on a project that's too much for them and seen it fall apart before their eyes has to feel some of the some of the tension in the build up to this festival. But there's so much going on in that clip. Sam, you're the one who who wrote on these two documentaries. Can you give us a little background for those of us who just remember the Fire Festival before these documentaries as a picture of a cheese sandwich that went viral on, on Instagram? Tell us what what the whole thing was about. Yeah, it's funny. It's hard to remember like what people thought it was going to be before it all went completely pear shaped because it became so much 
more famous as this debacle and the schadenfreude just kind of took everything up to an exponential level. But it was started off as this kind of sort of luxury mu- music festival for um Basically kind of, you know, well-heeled, like, urban white people. Um, they started, they kind of announced it to the world with its very slickly produced um, video involving all these kind of supermodels and Instagram influencers like um, Bella Hadid and Emily Ratowski, um, you know, like, playing around in the water and swimming with wild pigs, which is attractive for some reason, um, and 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 cameos by Ja Rule. He was sort of like the brand ambassador for this thing. He tries to declaim kind of all responsibility for it in the documentaries and his, his Twitter feed in the last few days is just kind of a symphony of, you know, like it wasn't me. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was supposed to be this, you know, you would pay, you know, however many thousand dollars and you would get some level of kind of luxury villa on the beach and you would get to see... Um, at what at one point it was rumored one of the headliners was going to be Kanye West, although that was not ever even pretending to be the case. And and Blink One Eighty Two and Major Lazer and people like that. So you would get to go to this um, remote island and get to see all these bands and be around all these sort of famous, if not particularly accomplished, people. Um, and that was the attraction for it, I guess. Right. And then as this documentary tra- or as both documentaries track with we can compare with, with what degree of, you know, accuracy and uh, and entertainment value. But um, but this promoter, Billy McFarland, who started the entire festival with Ja Rule, was essentially running a kind of Ponzi scheme where he was borrowing money from or or rather getting money from one investor to pay off another investor and bilking every one of the prospective guests for this festival by trying to get them to invest more money in their, you know, prepaid bracelets and, and so forth, and essentially just raising millions of dollars, losing millions of dollars and, and not organizing a festival at all. Right. I mean, the the uh, Hulu documentary Fire Fraud kind of goes into this in more detail. His kind of big venture before Fire was this uh, thing called Magnesis, um, which he admits he misspelled, um, considering it looks more like it was Magnuses. Um, but it was sort of a black card, like a, you know, Amex black card, but without the actual credit card part. It was just kind of an add on to your real credit card. He invented the prototype by just kind of peeling the magnetic strip off his debit card and sticking it to a piece of kind of polymer that he got from China. Um, But it was supposed to give, you know, sort of, again, sort of, you know, wealthy white millennials in New York, like access to these exclusive events. Although you also find out that when he would say like, oh, I have like an inside track on Hamilton tickets, he would often end up kind of at the last minute without Hamilton tickets and then just hit up StubHub and pay way more. More than they than he was even charging them, and he was already charging them a premium. But he would pay way more than that for Hamilton tickets, and then just kind of pass that cost along to someone else. So he was just kind of one step ahead of his creditors every step of the way. But this got him a certain amount of press as this um, you know kind of visionary, this person who was offering these exclusive experiences, allowing people to um, kind of allowing the one percent to hobnob with the point one percent. Um, and that was really kind of the, the banner under which Fire Festival rolled out. It was just, a, you know, the exclusivity was the point. Shannon, both of these documentaries about fire, but more so, I would say, the, the Hulu documentary, Fire Fraud, for focus on the, the generational component of the festival and, and really try to break down what it was about 
millennials in particular and their style of using social media and desire supposedly to you know access these elite events that made it possible for this fraud to be perpetrated. The Hulu documentary is really condescending and somewhat um, reducing of millennials in, in the way that it looks at them. It's There's a lot of uh, sort of cheesy pop culture references and the movie's always cutting back and forth between real talking head footage and you know stories of what happened with the fire festival and then some sort of pop culture reference that you know demeans and, and ridicules all the people involved. Of course it is really fun to laugh at rich people who do stupid things like buy the tickets for this festival. But there also is something to me disturbing about the way these documentaries reduce it all down to this generational stereotype. Is that just me? I mean, I'm just I'm not that into generational divisions anyway. They often seem very arbitrary and molded around the argument that one wants to make rather than based in any sociological reality. But as someone from that demographic, did you feel offended? I mean, I, I think I'm pretty used to people condescending to millennials in general. So that aspect wasn't really new. I think that the type of person that's going to be duped into buying a $10,000, even $25,000 ticket to one of these festivals is a really specific type of person. It's not a millennial. It's not most millennials. I think these people exist in other generations as well. Somebody who's going to be attracted to this very superficial image of models playing on the beach and say, yes, I'm going to throw thousands and thousands of dollars for a three-day experience of doing that. Um, that's, you know, as Sam said, uh, 1% maybe that is really interested in getting into the 0.1%. I think it's really interesting in the clip that was played that Billy says, oh, we're giving this opportunity for average Americans to have this experience um, because it's not the average American that's going to be able to pay tens of thousands of dollars to fly down to the Bahamas for the weekend. It's a really specific person. Right. I'm actually yeah. even surprised he would phrase it that way because it seems like most of the marketing and the way that the whole fraud scheme worked in the first place is that you wanted to feel elite and not average at all. Right, right. It's the type of person who can sign up for this experience without really asking any follow-up questions, without you know saying, oh, I want to read a Yelp review of stuff that this guy has done to see if this is going to be money well spent. Um, yeah. And I think most of us just can't even afford to live like that. What was kind of incredible to me was just how little they were able to build this entire scheme on. They had that one expensive promotional video that they shot with the supermodels and the wild pigs. And they got a few influencers, including Ja Rule and who else? Kendall Jenner posted something for them. They sort of had this social media blitz, this one day that they announced the fire Festival. And uh, and based on those two pieces of of promotional marketing, the entire thing took off, right? They never really, for one thing, they were not actually building the festival and building the infrastructure on this on this island, but they didn't even really extend anything else to their to their guests and customers than that. Right. They were only doing the fun parts. They weren't doing any of the boring parts, like figuring out where people were going to pee. And this is the stuff that I think the the Netflix documentary does really well. It's they're both documentaries, as you as you wrote, Sam, have their problems, and in some ways they fill in for each other's deficiencies. But the Netflix documentary does an amazing job of showing how hard it is to organize a big event. I feel like it's something that should have to be shown to anyone who's getting into event planning. You know, even if you're just planning a wedding or a bar mitzvah or something, just looking at all the things that you have to take into account. That if you don't take into account, you get a situation that is not only fraudulent and unfair to the people who paid for it, but potentially really dangerous. I feel like it's just a parody of sort of the Silicon Valley culture of like taking a bunch of money and being like, we're going to figure out how to make it work no matter what. Um, and it also reminded me a lot of like the secret and the idea that you can just like manifest things through positive thoughts. I don't think that's a uniquely millennial thing, but I think that that's an idea that's 
really been in the zeitgeist for the past few years and kind of finds a nice home on Instagram where it's like, oh, just post positive quotes and like your life will be going well. And um, well, there's also something Trumpian about it, right? Yeah. I mean, there certainly is about Billy McFarlane himself, who is this guy who has only the gift of the gab and, you know, so this sort of shamelessness of a sociopath. That's all he has going for him to, to put this thing together. But there's there's sort of this idea they said it couldn't be done, you know, a little bit like Trump's win in, in 2016, where you can you can go so far on the energy of that positive thinking and, you know, against all odds, we're going to pull it off. But at a certain point, if you don't do the work and deliver the product, you're going to fail. And that is sort of the tension of these two documentaries is watching that discourse of positivity fight against the simple reality that shit is not getting done. Right. I mean, it, it reminded me, as Shannon says, like, it reminded me a ton of startup culture. And that's why I feel like the focus on millennials, particularly in, in fire fraud, is a little bit overplayed because I, I feel like this, you know, kind of just throw a lot of money into a hole and eventually trust us will turn a profit thing has been the model in startup culture for like three decades at least. Um, it's very much not a new thing. And the thing is, is sometimes, you know, the person who's telling you that eventually, don't worry, things are going to turn around even though we're losing money like every year for 10 years, eventually, sometimes that company is Netflix. Um, sometimes that company is MoviePass or it's the Fire Festival and they actually don't have a strategy for it. But the line between kind of visionary confidence and utter bullshit is right. so kind of blurry and often non-existent that, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to note that, I mean, Billy McFarlane built these millennial would-be influencers out of thousands, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in tickets. He got something like, you know, $25, 30000000 million out of investors, most of whom are, are older than him. You know, so it's not comparatively, I mean, the much bigger scam was the one he pulled on the investors and also the, the contractors. Fire in particular really brings out that the people who got shafted in this were the people who put their financial trust in him and not just the people who bought tickets, but the kind of local contractors who were working for months on the promise of pay. Um, some of the companies who work for him, for whom to whom you know he still owes you know hundreds of thousands of dollars that will obviously never be paid back. Um, so there is, I think that movie in particular is really good at taking this past just the sort of laughing at like rich idiots thing, which is you know an essential part of the experience, and I wouldn't deny anyone that pleasure. Um, but you know there is sort of genuine harm caused along the way as well. We should probably wrap soon, but I want to get an opinion from both of you. If people want to watch just one, honestly, I've, after I watched one, I wanted to watch the other. It was not at all too much to watch, I don't know, three hours of Fire Festival coverage. I would watch more. But if you wanted to send somebody to just one of these docs, which would it be and why? I, too, welcome more. Um, if any studios want to make an, a third uh, documentary, I would definitely buy a ticket. Um, if you only have time for just one, definitely the Netflix one. Um, it's a lot less condescending to millennials. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have it doesn't have those cheesy intercuts with things like it was like a game of whack-a-mole cut to a child in an arcade yeah. <laughs> playing actual whack-a-mole in case you didn't know what it was. Although it does have Billy McFarlane himself as an interviewee, which the Netflix documentary doesn't. Right. And that highlights there is sort of people have drawn but drawing a lot of um, sort of attention to ethical issues around both of the documentaries, which I, th I think is fair. I mean, the fire fraud paid Billy, Mc, Billy McFarlane an undisclosed sum that's probably somewhere somewhere in the five figures um, for his interview. Um, and as you mentioned, Dana, the Netflix documentary is produced by Jerry Media, who marketed the festival. Um, and who come off as fairly villainous themselves in the other documentary, right? Yeah, but, I mean, but Fire Fraud so in... makes, makes a point of saying they knew that they were marketing this bullshit and they did it anyway. And Fire kind of allows them to say, well, look, if I market a BMW and it turns out to be a bad car, that's not my fault. Uh, I, I think 
fire gives you the space to see look at that um, statement evaluate the extent to which it's utterly like a line of crap and I think that's one of the reasons why it's the better movie for me but I also think it's kind of impossible you know these are like Doritos I mean you can't eat just one you know if you watch one of these things you're gonna want to watch the other one you may need to take a breath to just kind of let your you know heart rate drop a little bit after finishing one but you're gonna end up watching both of them what anyway. about which order would you have a preference in order that's tough. I mean, I I, th- I feel like I I watched the Hulu one first, and I th- I think I would probably watch Netflix first. Um, just only because you know it's better among other things, and I, I think the Hulu one kind of you know fills in some of the gaps. Um, certainly in terms of like the the plot, and there's they have more interviews with the influencers who were you know part of this whole thing, which who are kind of absent in in the Netflix documentary. But as you say, I mean, they're also all these really. It seems like Hulu kind of gave them an unlimited. Um, budget to just kind of show clips from other things on Hulu. So it's like they mention the U.S. attorney and there's a clip of the U.S. attorney from Billions and they mention, um, I think, some kind of like loan. And then there's a picture. Then there's a clip from Family Guy. And it's just why is this in here? So I think that stuff is pretty annoying. And I think if you start off with fire fraud, you might not make it to fire. And that would be a shame. Right. Yeah. It condescends not only to millennials, but somewhat to the viewer as well, I would say, the Hulu version. But If you can't get enough schadenfreude, they're both pretty great. All right, moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now is the time in our show when we talk business. All we have to say today is that in Slate Plus, we will be talking more about music festivals, not specifically about the disaster of the Fire Festival last year and the two documentaries about it, but about the whole phenomenon of music festivals from Woodstock on and how they've evolved into 2018. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a way to support our show. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of those shows and many other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. All right, onward. The Wife is an adaptation directed by the Swedish director Bjorn Runga of Meg Wallitzer's novel of the same name, which follows Joan Castleman, who's played in the film by Glenn Close, the second wife of a wildly successful and wildly self-centered author. It's a role that changes dramatically as long-simmering resentments between the couple finally come to light. And just to set it up, what's happening in this clip is that the couple are riding together in a chauffeured limousine around Stockholm, Sweden, where they've been invited because Joe has won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Joe, please don't thank me in your speech. What? I don't want to be thought of as the long-suffering wife. You understand that, don't you? No, 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 no. I have to thank you. Everyone thanks their wife. If I don't, I'll come off like some narcissistic bastard. But you are. (laughs) God. No, it'll be quick, Joni. You know, one sentence, it'll be painless. Come on. No, no. You okay? Yeah. 
do what you need to do. All right, Culture Gab Fest listeners will be happy to know that we have Julia Turner with us again after her morning spent, I imagine, frantically commissioning coverage of the Oscars nominations. Julia, hi. We're glad you're here. Hello. Thank you guys for holding down the fort. So after Glenn Close won this Golden Globe for The Wife a couple weeks ago, it sort of became a joke on film Twitter, Sam, that nobody had seen The Wife. It was like the most acclaimed movie that no one has ever seen. It was it, it debuted in September to very little fanfare. And really, until she won this award, was not being talked about as a big end of year awards contender. And now if it is being talked about as an awards contender, it's mainly because of Glenn Close's performance, which is the only category in which it got an Oscar nomination. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, Glenn Close is, I believe, now the living the living person who has been most frequently nominated for an Oscar without winning one. This is now seven um, nominations for her. So I think there's a lot of feeling that that she's due. Um, and there is a weird history, uh, particularly in Best Actress, of people. I first remember seeing it for like uh, when Jessica Lange won for Blue Sky. I mean, there's a history, particularly in this category, of people winning for movies that it feels like nobody has seen. Um, and that probably speaks to a whole concatenation of things about like the roles for actresses in Hollywood and, and stuff like that. But it is um, people love her performance, even if, um, as we will probably soon talk about, they don't necessarily think that much of the movie. Tell us what you think of the movie, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't love it, I guess I would say. I mean, I saw it described in one of the uh, one of the reviews as a staid melodrama, which is so condescending. It makes me feel almost bad for the movie. I really enjoyed this movie, but it breaks absolutely no ground sort of dramatically or aesthetically or artistically. It is mainly a vehicle for performances. But I would say not only Glenn Close's, it really is one of those dual performances where Jonathan Price and Glenn Close have to play this long married couple with this very troubled history. And I thought both of them were superb in the movie. Very worth seeing just for that alone. What about you, Julia? Yeah, I am glad that I went and saw this movie at the uh, 10 a.m. matinee yesterday morning with about four other people in Santa Monica, Um, in part because Glenn Close is such a great actress and this is a great performance. And if she ends up getting Best Actress statuette for it, well, you know, I, I don't think I would cry that a calamity has befallen us all. Um, there is a funny way in which the plot of the film echoes the awards narrative. You know, the the film is about a talented and long-suffering person whose talents are increasingly taken for granted um, and who is reckoning with how much she wants uh, recognition for what she has achieved and uh there's a nice little undercurrent there but the movie the movie has this dual structure and basically every uh moment in which glenn and her husband are bopping about stockholm being awkwardly feted by people in sashes i i enjoyed um they have kind of a brooding son who's a little too broody and then christian slater is a sniveling journalist who's a little too sniveling um but then there's these kind of mid-century flashbacks to earlier periods in their marriage. And I I found myself wishing that the movie had found a way to evoke the past without actually depicting it. I felt like those flashback sequences, even though the performances in them were pretty fine and the woman they cast to play the young Glenn Close did have some like plainer similarities in the structure of her face to Glenn Close's she's, face. She's Glenn Close's daughter, Julia. Did you know uh, that? Oh, <laughs> I knew I had read that. I totally forgot about that. And I wonder if she looks so much like Glenn Close. The fix is ah. in. Yeah. yeah, that was a nice surprise right. at the end of the movie for me, too. I was thinking, who was that young woman? Although I don't think she looks uncannily like Glenn Close. She evokes her, her spirit somehow. And that makes sense because it's her daughter, Annie Stark. 
Anyway, I just, it, I, do you agree with me that those flashbacks were cornball rooney There's something really artificial about those flashbacks. I mean, in general, I find it, it it's, it's, to me, is, is often problematic in movies where there, there are different actors playing characters at different ages. That, that jump that you have to make to accept that person is the same person is sometimes not worth it. <laughs> I would rather, I would rather have that memory evoked in, in some other more indirect way than just having this whole new set of faces to get to know and accept as the two characters. And I didn't love the guy who played the younger Jonathan Price. He really didn't seem like the same person at all. No, I thought the flashbacks were really pretty awful and they really are like a drag on the movie. They also seem like um, they're maybe supposed to be in the style of like Jonathan Price's character's writing, which seems to be kind of uh, Philip Rothy, for lack of a better word. They reminded me a lot of um, the adaptation Indignation from a couple of years ago, which is quite a good movie and made me wish um, that I was watching that uh, while I was watching the flashbacks. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Glenn Close and the reason and Jonathan Price are the reasons to see this movie. And this movie suffers from this problem that movies about great artists often do, which is that it's got to represent the great art somehow. And this movie gets around that question, right? How do we recreate this supposedly magical prose of Joe Castleman uh, without having a great writer <laughs> to to write it by just avoiding it completely? And so as a result, the act of writing or the, the, the fact of, of being someone who creates prose all day is very immaterial in this movie, right? There's a lot of people running around with elbow patches and, you know, scholarly looking outfits sort of talking about books and holding books but there's not any there's not really any moment where there's a, a sentence of his prose that we hear read aloud or you know get any sense of why people are so excited about this guy's work yes except for we hear uh, the nobel description of how his work has transformed literature twice once at the beginning of the film and once at the end when we've thought more about who really deserves credit for the um you know the success of the artist the other thing I can, would say about this film, which makes it less interesting than it might be um, without spoiling, is just that the question of how the people who love geniuses support them and, and what that emotional work entails and what the structure of that kind of life is, is its own set of interesting questions. And this movie finds a plot-based way to sidestep some of those questions and raise another set of questions, which are sort of less interesting emotionally, I think, even though they're kind of more interesting plot shock wise. Um, and so it makes all of the beautiful acting feel a little uh, used for a strange purpose, because rather than interrogating the contours of any marriage, it's it's rendering the contours of a marriage that's so specific and so perverse in a particular way that uh, you don't quite get as much out of it. Right. I mean, we're talking around it a little bit, and I think we want to sort of, you know, preserve the plot of the movies. But as, as you say, Julie, I mean, it is, you know, we're in a moment where we're really sort of questioning um, the sort of the myth of like, you know, the, the great male genius and um, all the other, you know, work that sort of goes into um, supporting him. Um, and this movie, you know, feels like it's kind of taking that on. And, and uh, Glenn Close is, I, I was reminded a lot watching, she has this, is this very sort of, you know, cold, sort of imperious performance. And it reminded me a lot of um, her performance in Dangerous Liaisons. Um, but the movie finds a very kind of literal, plotty way to kind of, you know, take that on and surprise us. And I feel like that is ultimately kind of less interesting than some of the other ways that 
that dilemma could have been approached. Yeah, there's a little bit of a pot boiler kind of beach read feeling to the way that the plot unfurls in the last 20 minutes, which allows for a really great dramatic scene that's kind of stagey that you can easily imagine happening on a, a stage in a theater. But that is a chance for some great acting pyrotechnics from Glenn Close, who's been so restrained in the movie up to that point. I mean, you can't ever really ask people to miss an opportunity to see Glenn Close throw things around a room. I mean, that's got to see it. Yeah, it's almost like this This movie has 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 two components and one of them is nuanced and specific and, you know, full of all kinds of beauties and discoveries, which is the relationship between Glenn Close and Jonathan Price's characters and the acting in the scenes between just them and everything else in the movie involving their two grown children, those flashbacks to the beginning of their relationship that we talked about. Uh, some of the drama also involving, you know, various Nobel representatives and people that are working with them in, in Sweden. All of that stuff that doesn't have to do with those two actors in a room confronting each other felt very contrived and movieish to me that it was just there in order to set up their relationship so that you know fireworks could go off in in that part of the movie right there's always an anxiety when you're making a movie about writers that it's going to feel sort of you know claustrophobic and and closed off but i i think this is almost something i would rather have seen as as just a straight two-hander with Glenn Close and, and Jonathan Price. I feel like every other pair of hands that gets in there just muddies things. Yeah, including the pouty, brooding, frustrated writer son who kind of also seems like a character in a bad short story whose thwarted male ambition is rotting his core. I felt bad for the actor cast in that role because it's just so thankless. I mean, you're not there's nothing you can do but sort of look like a pouty brat. His lines are all things like, sure pop, you know, said with with no expression whatsoever as his father says something condescending to him. Since we mentioned earlier that Annie Stark, who plays the younger Glenn Close, is Glenn Close's daughter, I just I have to mention that the son, the poor disserved actor who plays their son is Max Irons, the son of Jeremy Irons. So this is a movie full of second generation movie stars. Yeah, it's like a reversal of reversal of fortune. (laughs) It's like good that this movie exists just so that you can make that joke. Yes. Yeah, no, he and Christian Slater, smarmy journalist Christian Slater. All right. We are spending so much time picking apart the things that are not good about this movie. But since Glenn Close might actually win an Oscar for this performance, should we talk a little bit more about it and what is interesting about it? I mean, Dana, did did you think this is one of Glenn's finest? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that it's a combination of this movie itself and the speech that she made at the Golden Globes and also this narrative that Sam mentioned earlier that she is now the most nominated individual not to have won an Oscar, that I'm kind of in her camp now. I mean, there's a really strong field of Best Actress nominees. Every single one of them, I think, would be a deserving recipient of the award. And I think Lady Gaga was really my favorite going in. But now having seen this movie and having heard Glenn Close's speech about her mother at the Golden Globes, which was quite incredible, she talked about how her mother, who died at 91, I think, and had never had a career and had been you know, a homemaker and a person invested completely in her family's well-being, was someone that she thought about as a resource when creating this character. And uh, and I don't know, I guess I mean, it worked for me. That narrative has now won me over. And I, I kind of want Glenn to win. I mean, I think that you see that in her performance. You see that it comes from somewhere really deep inside of her and that she's not just, you know, trying to put on a good show, but that she's she's reaching deep into a painful part of herself to to access what it would be like to be such an unfulfilled person, given that she herself is obviously so accomplished and fulfilled a person. 
All right. Well, in, I guess, uh, a few weeks, a little bit more than a month, we'll be able to see whether or not Glenn takes it for the wife. And in the meantime, I think I would I would send people to it. I mean, it's kind of an airplane movie. <laughs> it's It passes the time very agreeably, and it does have those two wonderful performances at its center. So I would say go see the wife. Also has scenes on an airplane, the Concorde. Love a Concorde cameo. See it for the Concorde. Actually, yeah, it's, and it's a movie about a trip. So, yes, see it on a plane. Go take a trip just so that you can watch the wife on the plane. Everything else from the 80s is coming back. Bring back the Concorde. All right. Well, as of 520 this morning, Los Angeles time, Julia, the Oscar nominations have finally been announced. You have been overseeing their coverage at the Times, and I imagine that you have been commissioning takes and interpreting the uh, the data and throwing the tea leaves in various ways. Were there any major shocks for you or anything that uh, that stands out as uh, as worthy of discussion? There were many small surprises and many small snubs. Um, you know, I guess I'll highlight a few of those before we get to some of the big themes. Uh, there were some big surprises in the documentary nominations, neither Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Mr. Rogers documentary that we all adored, nor Three Identical Strangers, the documentary that we saw um, coming out of Sundance last year, were nominated. Uh, th- those two snubs were very surprising. Yeah, the documentaries. I agree. Surprisingly, that slate was one of the ones that that held the most unexpected entries, including two of the documentaries that were nominated that I personally hadn't expected Hale County this morning, this evening, which is an extremely, how would you describe it, Sam? I mean, it's a very um, elusive, sort of non-narrative documentary about a small town in Georgia. Yeah, it's a very sort of, you know, abstract, deliberately kind of not plot-driven take on on sort of, you know, basically black uh, sort of small town life. Um, and the director, Ramel Ross, really wanted to kind of just step away from a certain kind of narrative and try to, to find a new, a new way of putting together not even a story, but just of putting a, a film together that isn't so driven by, you know, individual stories and conventional drama and things like that. It's a really wonderful film. It's really, um, you know, pushing the envelope of what most people think of as, as nonfiction. Uh, it was not something I expected to see in this category, and it's an extremely um, pleasant surprise. I was somewhat surprised by Minding the Gap, too, which you said that you weren't. I mean, I know it's been really recognized and been on a lot of critics' lists and things like that, but it just seemed like, for one thing, it's a debut film of a very young director. And I don't know, it just seemed something that would be a little bit under the radar of, of big awards. It just seemed like the kind of movie for me, like every day I see some, I have seen some, you know, like blue checked, uh, presumed Academy voter um, saying on Twitter that they just discovered this movie and how great they think it is. I think people have really gotten behind it as this um, really kind of intensely personal story that seems initially like it's about um, this finger film like you're being there making a film about his skateboarding friends. And then it also becomes very much a movie about him and his past, which is um, they all have all the characters have kind of quite troubled past that they've managed to find some sort of salvation from in this, this skateboarding community. And it becomes a movie about, um, you know, sort of masculinity um, and, and other things. So it's, you know, just a really, especially for her first effort, just a tremendous movie. And it won um, a lot of, you know, top documentary honors from critics organizations and stuff like that. So I felt like that would be enough to um, get it into the category. And now that Won't You Be My Neighbor is out of the way, I mean, I think it's certainly not the favorite, but I think there's a dark horse chance it might even win. Um, I may just be setting myself up for disappointment there, but I would be very happy if that is the case. <laughs> We're such film critics all hyped about the best documentary category that no, no one's All right, all right. I can zoom to out it. to something slightly more mainstream. That was just, those were the biggest shocks. But probably the other biggest shock was Bradley Cooper not getting nominated for Best Director for Star is Born, which I think a lot of people thought was in the bag. Yeah, that was a bit a bit odd, especially because Star is Born got so much recognition otherwise. But 
wasn't it surprising that it wasn't nominated for best score or is that typical for for musicals it just seemed very strange that that a score that has become you know like a best-selling album wasn't nominated for best score only best song um yeah no, i think yeah bradley cooper is certainly one of those surprising omissions he was you know several months ago kind of considered the favorite to win best director i mean he's fallen very much in the standings and alfonso Cuarón is very much thought to be the winner now but to not even see him in the category um was quite a surprise and the other big surprise for me, it's sort of in a, a smaller category, but seeing uh, Marina de Tavira, who plays the um, the mother in Roma, um, to see her get into supporting actress, who is, I mean, she has completely not been part of the awards conversation so far. I don't think she's even been nominated for any of the precursor awards, let alone one. Um, that seems to me um, a very good sign that there's Roma is not in the editing category, which is usually considered a best picture bellwether and so that's a surprising omission but the fact that she ended up in supporting actors seems to indicate to me there's a very strong roman contingent in the academy and i I think that bears um will probably bear very well for its overall chances i mean as as mark harris observed in his great write-up of the oscar nominations this morning there's really not a consensus narrative that can be drawn from all of these nominations and that may have to do with the you know, the sudden diversification, the recent diversification of the Oscar voting pool is much bigger than it has been before. And it's more diverse in terms of race, gender, and also, I think, generation than it has been in a while. Rather than that new votership forming some sort of emerging consensus, it seems to have divided up the voters into various voting factions. So, for example, Green Book, which is the movie we discussed last week, which seems to appeal mainly to the older white Oscar voter that we think of as the traditional stodgy Oscar voter, has all of this recognition. But then so do movies like Hale County This Morning, This Evening, right? Or the recognition of this Mexican actress who was previously unknown to these voters for Best Supporting Actress. There's There seems to be input from a lot of different ideological groups. Right. It seems like you can trace sort of a bunch of different factions in the nominees. I mean, you can assume there's sort of like maybe, a you know, the favorite like Roma Cold War branch of the Academy. Um, you know, there's a kind of Green Book Bohemian Rhapsody uh, contingent. <laughs> the bad movie contingent. I, I, I mean, I don't want to say that, but yes, the bad movie contingent. Uh, um, yeah, but it doesn't seem like anybody's really, you know, coming out ahead. And there's been a lot of, of talk, as you said, about the, I mean, the Academy has ended, added an unprecedented number of new members with a real um, emphasis on women and people of color in the last several years. And that has um, produced some marked shift in the results, like, like Moonlight winning a couple of years ago. Um, but it definitely seems like the old guard is um, really kind of making a stand on Green Book. And it'll be uh, interesting to see who uh, comes out ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the contingence theory is is interesting and in, in the trend you both have observed that there's a lot of different currents and threads in this pool of nominees and it's not a kind of pure will it be Moonlight or will it be La La Land narrative, although there's still a few weeks yet for a narrative to emerge. But I do think it's worth noting that there were three nominations for Buster Scruggs, which was a little bit surprising, which brought Netflix's total nominations to 13. It's a pretty big haul for a company that is uh, both pretends not to care about all of the traditional markers of Hollywood success and also at the same time very much cares about all of the traditional markers of Hollywood success. They want to win at the new game they've invented and win at everybody else's old games too, and they seem on their way to doing fairly well in that regard. You know, for uh, Black Panther, Ryan Coogler was not nominated for Best Director, which I think was a disappointment to some of the fans of that film. But 
you know, the first time, arguably, the superhero movie has been nominated for Best Picture, the first Marvel film to be nominated for Best Picture. Um, that's sort of a fairly big coup for Disney to have Marvel recognized in that way. Um, and then one last thing that is really exciting and long overdue about this morning's nominations is that Spike Lee was finally nominated for Best Director, which is a thing that has not happened to him <laughs> in the past, which is so incredibly and crazy and insane um, for Black Klansmen. And so I was happy that uh, that that came through. Yeah, it's mind-boggling that that hasn't happened so far. I mean, the Academy did give him sort of an honorary Oscar a few years ago, which is usually something that's reserved for people who are kind of in their 70s and 80s and have basically stopped making movies as kind of a makeup for having forgotten them for their entire career. I mean, it's unusual to give somebody a career award when they're still in the middle of their career the way Spike Lee is. But obviously, there was a recognition that it's been kind of absurd the extent that which he's been ignored so far. So this is um, – even if you know Black Klansman doesn't seem like a, a favorite for anything necessarily at the Nomination at the very least is uh, the word overdue was coined for situations like this. And it got a surprising number of nominations in other categories, too, which might you know indicate whether it wins them or not, that there's some sort of momentum going in, in Spike's direction. There were a couple of oversights that made me really sad. Um, in addition to the, uh, the the those documentary ones were very surprising. But the ones that I found most heartbreaking were that Leave No Trace uh, was blanked. Um, I don't think that was necessarily surprising because it also hasn't fared particularly well in uh, in many of the precursor awards. But of all of the movies we saw last year, that one really stayed with me for the distinctiveness of its vision and the quietude of its story. And um, I was bummed that that did not get further recognized. Also, I think that the screenplay for Eighth Grade, there's lots of things to love about the movie Eighth Grade. There are lots of performances to love in it. The direction is really interesting. The vision of it is great. Plenty to love. But I would argue that the screenplay would would have been the thing to nominate, particularly because the ways in which those inarticulate YouTube pep talks are scripted is so note perfect. Uh, And I was sad that that did not get nominated as well. Yeah, I was particularly uh, bummed. I mean, I have you know fairly realistic expectations about the Oscars at this point, but I really did think um, that Ethan Hawke was going to get into Best Actor for First Reformed. Um, he did not. Someone else who's really overdue for that sort of recognition. Um, Leave No Trace. You know, I had no reason to expect it would get anything, but it, I think I was. I've decided it was probably the best movie of last year. So to see it get nothing in here is is pretty disappointing. Um, as as many people have predicted and have noted today now that it's happened, there are no women in the best director field. And uh, Deborah Granick from that movie also, Mariel Heller from Can You Ever Forgive Me and Tamara Jenkins for Private Life are among the uh, women who could easily have been there um, instead of some of the nominees. Especially surprising because Heller's movie, Can You Ever Forgive Me, got a lot of recognition in other categories, right? Best Supporting Actor, Best Screenplay. It it, it seems like she would have been a shoe-in and it would have been a way of of at least having a token woman in that category, but no, it didn't happen. I mean, there's often a sort of, you know, it's always cliche at this point, but there's often a saying that the editing category instead of best editing should be called most editing. And I feel like <laughs> that's the case for directing this year. It's very much most directing and not oh, best directing. The favorite directing. is so most directing. Yeah. I mean, we've already talked about on this show, but it's just like you can peel off the directing like fondant from that movie. Right. And, and Vice is a movie. I mean, it's a mess in a, in a way that exactly a better director should have you know reined things in. But it is very obvious the director's hand is very much in there. And Mariel Heller kind of 
got great performances out of her actors and put the camera in smart but unobtrusive places and basically stayed out of the way a great story and made a great movie but did not do it in a way that like screamed, hey, look at me. Here's the director. Here's the stuff that I'm doing. Um, and the Director's Guild apparently is not that interested in that. Which is interesting because I feel like her first movie was a little more most most directed in a way that I loved. But Diary of a Teenage uh, Girl. Yeah, it was sort of slightly ostentatious in its visual style um, in a way that worked for me. But uh, it's not like she toned it down because she doesn't know how to turn it up. No, her, her she's now making a movie with um, starring Tom Hanks as, as Mr. Rogers. So maybe that will be the Mr. Rogers movie that the Academy chooses to I recognize. I can't wait. That's one of the upcoming movies I'm most excited about. That's just a really nice combination of elements. One other surprising thread this morning was the success of foreign films. So the top two vote-getters, Roma and The Favorite, each with 10 nominations, are both foreign films. Roma is probably the foreign language film to get the most nominations ever. Um, And The Favorite, obviously, a foreign production with a foreign director. Outside of the foreign film category, there were nominations for Border, Never Look Away, and Cold War. So that's a really strong showing from the international uh, filmmaking community. Which may also have to do with the diversification of the Academy because it included not only more women and people of color and younger people, but also, I think, more international representatives. So, you know, they're not as focused maybe on American Hollywood movies. Well, I guess February 24th is the ceremony, right? So we will reconvene at that time and, and see how, how it all shook down. We sure will. Looking forward to being disappointed even more. <laughs> Shaking your fist at the gods yes. as one does every year. Yes. I call Oscar night is drink and yell at the TV night. So looking forward to that. All right. Well, I know that Oscars are something that everybody has opinions and thoughts and complaints and suggestions about. So if you have any of those, please hit us up on Twitter at at Slate Cult Fest and we'll discuss. And we've reached that moment in the show when we endorse. Sam, what have you experienced this week that you want the world to know about? Well, it's a bit of a cheat because it only came out on Friday, but I've been listening to it for months. But the new um, Sharon Van Etten album, Remind Me Tomorrow, is just uh, wonderful. She's somebody I've liked for years, but this feels like a real kind of breakthrough album. It's been five years since her last one, a period in which she sort of quit music to go back to school, had a child. Um, How would you characterize her music? Ah, boy, that's hard. Um, It's basically rock, I guess you would say. I mean, these are just these... You know, are a little the songs are a little more sort of anthemic, um, maybe a little sort of more you know emotionally grueling, but also very kind of like melodically pop forward. They're just real rockers. Um, some of the ones like uh, Comeback Kid and, and Seventeen have been out for um, a few weeks or months before the albums. It's sort of in this new strategy where you spend three months hearing about an album before it comes out, and then by the time it actually comes out, you feel like it already happened. But in fact, it just happened on Friday. But that is an album. I've been uh, walking around, especially listening to for for months and um, really worth checking out. Hey, Julie, what about you? What have you got? Well, I'm here to tell you that Gen X's favorite hate watch is back. 
Friends from College season two has dropped <laughs> on Netflix. The show that and you hate to love, love to hate, and are embarrassed to watch in the first place. I will say that like several of my other favorite Gen X TV watchers, among them Willa Paskin and Allison Benedict, already tweeted about the season before I even started it. But once I started it, I had finished it. Like I don't even understand how I watched eight episodes in four minutes when each of them is half an hour long, but I gobbled this show up. Uh, I continue to enjoy this representation of my micro-generation, and I continue to think that Kobe Smulders is one of the most undervalued actresses uh, in working today. She's so good. And in general, the things we objected to in the show last year, it's incredible, demented wildness of tone, the fact that they all seem to be acting in a different show, the fact that they were all so excruciatingly self-centered and didn't seem particularly cognizant of that fact. All of those things have deepened and mellowed a little bit in season two um, to where they are tonally a little more unified and uh, the fact of their being awful is more the plot rather than something nobody seems to have noticed and um, and Kobe, uh, Kobe smolders. Smolders, smolders in season two. I love the smolds. I keep hearing that there's no one likable on that show, and yet people are addicted to it. So I'm very curious. I guess there's there has to be some element of self-hatred in the love for that show. Would you say that's true, Julia? No, because the ways in which they are loathsome aren't particularly realistic. It's not like, ah, oh, they see me and all of my worst tendencies. They're just like loathsome for no reason. They're really immature and lame. But... Um, it's basically just like a soap. It's a soap opera, but but with comedic elements about my exact phase of life and uh, demographic. And so I'm happy to watch a soap. And with good musical cues that I remember from my youth. All right. Well, my endorsement this week is going to actually be a follow-up on my endorsement from last week, which, if you remember, was uh, Stan and Ollie, the, the Laurel and Hardy biopic, which I admit is a somewhat conventional biopic and doesn't really break any new ground in the form, but just has such wonderful performances and such warmth and affection for that period of film history that I couldn't help but love it. Uh, and I, I particularly, I think, last week commended John C. Riley's performance as Oliver Hardy. So my follow-up endorsement is just that as I was walking out of taping that endorsement, I saw that he had been on Fresh Air talking about the role and preparing for the role. And it's just a really, really great interview with with Terry Gross and John C. Riley. He's such a thoughtful, sensitive actor and has his preparation for the role was just extremely interesting to hear about and all the prosthetics that he wore to look like Oliver Hardy. Anyway, he's just a total delight to spend time with. And now one of my goals in life is just to hang out, go to the fire Festival with John C. Riley. <laughs> um, so yeah, listen to John C. Riley on Fresh Air, even if you're not going to go see Stan and Ollie. He's just a delight. Sam, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. Thanks for having me. And Julia, we will see you next time. Hopefully you will not have gotten up at five in the morning. You know, when uh, when the news engine calls, uh, I must be there. But yes, I'll be back next week. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And as always, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or reach us on Twitter at slatecultfest. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Ba 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 